We are in verse 31 of John chapter 19 this morning, picking up right where we left off three Sundays ago. John 19, verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when he saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. Well, fathers, we consider this next brief section of scripture, Lord, this, this brief event, this momentary experience of John at the cross of Jesus and what he saw and what he shares with us. Lord, I pray that you will unveil before us the relevance of it today and help us to see why this matters so much, why John took the extra time to focus on this issue. May we hear and understand, but beyond understanding, Father, may it be revealed to our hearts more of your heart for your people and for this very lost world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we went down to Disneyland. Some of you are waiting. How long is it going to take Rick to talk about Disneyland? Well, here I am. We got down there. I, I tell you what, I'm, I was so glad to be home. Four days in the tragic kingdom is all I could take. Four days of Disneyland. It was exhausting. We were wiped out. We, we had a hotel, actually, near the park, and we walked back to the hotel every night. And I have a picture of David. I wish I, could, I should have brought it to put up on the screen. Lying on the floor in the hotel room, sacked out. He walked in, laid down, and went to sleep. I mean, that's how, how tired we were. And I was thinking about on the way home, why is it that we brutalize ourselves by doing these things? Why do we take the kids to Disneyland at all? And the truth is, if you've ever taken children to Disneyland, it's so that you can enjoy their wide-eyed wonder. I mean, the colors and the, and the characters and the rides, it's, it's, it's overwhelming, and it's just fun to watch their little eyes pop. Well, my nine-year-old Naomi did not disappoint us. We rode the Tower of Terror. And after stepping off the Tower of Terror, David thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I mean, this kid, seven years old, if it's fast, if it's high, if it's out of control, he loves it. Naomi, not so much. She steps off of the Tower of Terror and I said, well, honey, what'd you think? And she looked at me and she said, Dad, I saw my life flash before my eyes. And then she actually said what I was thinking. Naomi said, and how much can you do in nine years? (laughs) I love her. Later, we boarded Finding Nemo. We're getting on the Finding Nemo, the the redo of the old submarine ride, right? And as we're getting on it, she saw the Disney employee's name tag, which was Jesus. And she looked at it and she said, oh, hi, Jesus. (laughs) 
It's okay, the ride operator's name was, operator's name was Abraham, so it was all good. <laughs> she reminded me once again in that moment, and I actually thought this when she said, Dad, it's Jesus. <laughs> and she reminded me again of how much we have a great expectation to see Him. That there is a day coming, and I believe coming soon, when we will say, Hi, Jesus. Uh, Maybe not as casually as Naomi. I think we're going to be stunned beyond hellos. I think we will be on our knees before Him, worshiping, uh, pouring out in in tears of joy for the long wait of 2,000 years. But we're going to see Him again, not as a ride operator at Disneyland, but as the King over all lands. And He is coming. And that's the first thing I need you to note this morning and be aware of and think about once again. He is coming, and He is coming quickly. So we're called to be ready. It's a remarkable thought that we're going to see Him. Especially considering what John wrote in verse 30 of chapter 19, that He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. See, typically when someone bows their head and gives up their spirit, we don't immediately think about how soon we're going to see Him. How their coming is imminent. How their return is any moment. And yet with Jesus we have this great expectation. Not as one who will be raised from the dead. He already was raised from the dead. But a great expectation as of one who is watching us now. Whose spirit is present with us now. And who wants to be with us now. And that's a remarkable thing. He bowed his head. By the way, I didn't mention this three weeks ago. But the the word bowed there in the Greek literally means to lay back, as in resting. This final moment, when Jesus took His final breath on the cross, He laid back His head and said, it is finished. He didn't knock out. He didn't suffocate, he, as we're going to talk about. He didn't pass out. He said, it is finished. To us die. He drew His last breath. And he rested his head. And he went home. In absolute control. He gave up his spirit. The one who's called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, breathed his last. But we expect him, don't we? He's the one who said in Revelation 1, verse 17, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. So we, like Naomi, will say hi to Jesus once again. But before all of that, He had to go to the cross. He had to die at Calvary. He had to shout to Talus die. He had to bow His head. He had to give up His Spirit as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for my sin and for yours. It all had to happen this way. And you know why? Because we're a sin-sick world. We are a world in desperate need. A world that is spinning, lost. I don't say that in judgment, by the way, of the world. I say it in agreement. I need Jesus as desperately as anyone on the planet. Sometimes I think we fail at messaging that way to the non-believing world, helping non-believers understand, look, I'm not saying you're lost and I'm better. I'm saying I would be as lost as you. I would be as desperate as you. I would be as heartsick as you if I didn't know Jesus. Which is why I want you to know Jesus. 
It has nothing to do with me, my spirituality, my righteousness, my goodness. It's all Him. Because without Him, this entire world, every one of us, would be facing a lifetime of eternity in hell. I so wanted to be with you all a couple of weeks back on the Sunday following the Supreme Court decision. When our Supreme Court ignored 6,000 years of Earth's history and countermanded God's legal definition of marriage, not my legal definition, God's legal definition, the one that He set up, that a man shall leave father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, something that can only happen between a man and a woman. God's definition, God's design, God's creation, again, not mine. And I wanted to come and I wanted to talk about that. And i got to tell you, it is so easy for me to sit up here and rail on culture. And I probably do it too much. Because the very culture that we rail on needs the very Lord that we've come to worship. And I forget that. You know, I, I, I put on the boxing gloves. I take the stance of defense. I'm like, you need Jesus and we got Jesus and you're wrong and we're right and that's the way it is. And that's not the right message. It's heartbreaking to see what's going on in our country. Because there are those who will never know the love of Jesus. We need to be thinking about this, and I was reminded of this again, thinking through these things over the last couple of weeks, even as we walk around this church fellowship, around this building. We need to be thinking about what we're saying. What if someone, perchance, would walk in the door living a homosexual lifestyle, what would they hear? Isn't this the exact place they need to be to hear the gospel truth? And if we're walking around going, oh, Supreme Court gays, but, uh, you know, even mumbling to others who might have a, a like-minded understanding of how wrong that decision was, and the decision was wrong. But if we're grumbling about these things, and someone comes in here in a lifestyle that is not godly, Well, guess what? It's exactly what we want. To invite people to hear the message of the gospel, which is A, number one, the love call of God, and not the judgment of God. And this is just me pondering. The cross is for everyone. LGBT, the whole list. The cross is for everyone. And the cross changes everyone. It has me. It has you. Right? Doesn't it cause sin to be less tasteful? Doesn't it cause us to want to alter our lifestyles, whatever those lifestyles may be, to be more like Jesus? But the cross does no good to anyone who never hears it. Who doesn't know it. The gospel is for all to learn the love of Jesus. But if people don't hear the gospel of Jesus, don't know about the very story we're looking at this morning, then what hope do they have? And we're here to share this truth, this message. That the reality is, you cannot, I cannot stand without Him. I can't stand to be without Him. But I can't stand to live without Him. I can't stand. We stand because He stands. We stand because of His truth. 
But again, family of God, listen, truth does a person no good if they can't or won't hear it. So I'm thinking about that as I preach, as I think about the words that come out of my mouth on a Sunday. I will not stop speaking the truth. And I'm not going to speak it so I can be more comfortable in my rightness. I'm going to speak it so the lost can hear. We need to speak it so the love of God can be shared and known by all people. The Jewish leaders couldn't hear the gospel. Wouldn't hear the gospel. Had rejected the gospel. And so in verse 31 it says, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Because it was the day of preparation, you see, both Mark 15.42 and Matthew 27.62 both refer to the preparation. A traditional reference to the day before Passover or, or the lead up to Shabbat. And this was a high day because Shabbat fell directly on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You see, in the Jewish calendar you have Passover and the very next day began the Feast of Unleavened Bread that then continued on for the following week. Oftentimes, Passover was considered part of. They would, when they referred to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they meant Passover and Unleavened Bread because it came together. And a couple of days into that, three days, actually, you had the Feast of First Fruits. Well, that would be the day Jesus resurrected from the dead. So Passover, unleavened bread, it's the day of preparation, a high day, because not only is it unleavened bread, but it's also Shabbat, Sabbath, all on the same day. And you Bible students know this, you couldn't leave a person hanging on a tree overnight, on a cross even, overnight, and and the Jewish leaders understood this. They saw the cross as a tree. They understood the meaning of Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. Let me read it to you again. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he's to be put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, and you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. So if someone's hung on a tree, Deuteronomy, Or, the extrapolation among the Jewish leaders in the first century, if they're hung on a cross, you cannot leave them up overnight. You shouldn't. You need to get them down and bury them that day by Jewish law. By the way, Deuteronomy 21-23 says something that oftentimes we miss because of the way it's translated. We read, You shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. The actual Hebrew translation of accursed by God is literally the curse of God. He who is hanged on a tree is the curse of God. Jesus on the cross of Calvary became the curse of God. I mean, what? Jesus Christ, God made flesh? Emmanuel, Lord of Lords? became the curse of God that should have been my curse and should have been yours. Christ redeemed us, Galatians 3.13, from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Now listen, don't miss the significance of what's happening here. Because even his enemies, by requesting that he be taken down from the cross, recognized that Jesus had become the very curse of God. 
They saw that in him. On the cross, they saw this as a man accursed of God. And to die this way by divine Torah law signified the highest degree of reproach any person could bear. This was the worst of the worst. They looked at Jesus on the cross and they recognized, the Jewish leaders, as well as Torah law, recognized that this man was both cursed of man and cursed of God. And he was. Don't don't forget that. When Jesus was crucified, this was not an act of Rome or the Jewish people. It was as much an act of God as it was an act of man. Jesus was cursed both ways. He was the accursed of God. But now the law and even the Jewish leadership was satisfied as long as he hung there till sunset. And then he was accursed. All the guilt was paid for. Everything removed. He could be taken down. So even his enemies said, yeah, take him down. It's been paid. Paid in full. Psalm 32, verse 1, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Romans 4, verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Paul repeats, he says in Romans 4, 8, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So the very manner of Jesus' death, becoming the curse of God on the cross, hanging until sunset, fulfilled all the requirements of the guilt and the curse that was on Him and secured for us forgiveness for the most grievous of sins. Do you think that your sin is among the most grievous? His blood is greater. His forgiveness is greater. That there is no sin. And think about this in our current culture and what's happening right now all around us. There is no sin that is unforgivable save the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the outright rejection of Jesus. Because Jesus paid it all. But note this. John's is the only gospel to point out this bone-shattering truth. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. It's called crurifragium in the Latin. They actually have a word for it. A word was created for this process. What process? A man hanging on a cross having his legs broken. Crurifragium in the Latin means the smashing of the leg bones. It's amazing to me how brutal the cross was that they actually developed this word to speak of what would happen. Hey, we need to do a little crurifragium now. We need to smash his legs. We need to break his legs. And by the way, the only archaeological find of skeletal remains of a crucifixion, the only one that we have, discovered in 1968, reveals the lower legs were shattered both sides by a single blow. Why would they do it? Again, some of you have thought through these things, you know. They did it to bring on death more quickly. You're hanging on a cross. The cross was absolutely brutal. The condemned would hang there, hands and feet nailed to the cross, arms outstretched. And the pectoral muscles in the chest would begin to contract and spasm. And the muscle of the diaphragm would seize with pain as you hung there trying to hold yourself up because of the immense pain that was in your feet. From the nail driven through them. 
So your feet are down there in horrible pain. You're trying to pull up and you're trying to breathe. You're trying to breathe, but you don't have the strength to pull up. And so you have to push on your feet, which increase the pain in your feet, so that you could breathe for a few minutes. But then you had to hang back down because the pain was too intense in your lower legs and your feet. And as you would hang there, the muscles in the chest would begin to seize again. The diaphragm would cease working, and you literally could not breathe. And so involuntarily, you'd push up again. And if you were to watch a crucifixion, the horror of it is the up and down movement of the person on the cross trying to breathe in immense pain and hanging, trying to get some relief, but still not being able to breathe and pulling up and down. And this would go on for hours and hours and sometimes days until finally they would come and crurifragium, they would break the legs of the crucified. And then you would just hang and the muscles wouldn't work at all. You couldn't even draw a breath and would suffocate to death. And usually it happened pretty quickly. Shattering the shin bones brought along, brought on a shock many times, fast blood loss, and paralysis of the chest and abdomen. So the victim would suffocate. Jesus didn't suffocate, did he? He didn't asphyxiate. That is not how Jesus left this earth. Verse 33 says, Coming to Jesus, when they saw that He was already dead, they did not break His legs. You can imagine the soldiers were surprised. They came to Jesus and He's already dead. He was only up there six hours. Not a long time to be on a cross. Oh yeah, it's horrible. But as I said, usually it was multiple hours and sometimes into days, two, three days before they'd have to come break the legs of the suffering, convicted person. He's already dead. No need to break his legs. He's already dead. Jesus didn't die in shock. He didn't die of suffocation, despairing, gasping for air. His last breath, fully taken, was given to that single glorious word, Tetelus die. It is finished. And he laid back his head. And he died. As we talked about three weeks back, under His own authority, in His own power. And verse 34 goes on and says, but one of the soldiers pierced His side with a spear. Why would He do that? Well, just to be sure. Just to be sure. And immediately blood and water came out. Now listen. John writes, and he who has seen has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. This is a huge moment for John. This is a critical aspect of the story of the crucifixion of Jesus for John. He he writes this so that we will believe. Believe what, John? That Jesus was dead? We know he was dead. That he got speared in the side? What is, what is so important here that John would pause and say, look, this is my testimony. I saw this with my own eyes. Blood and water. I saw the spear go in. I saw that his legs weren't broken. I saw all of this. you got to know this. Why? So that you will believe. Believe what? Three things to jot down. First of all, a prophetic insight. A prophetic insight. Verse 36, John goes on and writes, For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. 
The Greek word broken there, suntrivo, means to break into pieces or to crush or to shatter. And it's exactly what we're talking about, that chlorophragium in the Latin, that breaking of the bones. And this was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, the fact that they didn't break his bones. They had no idea. The Romans weren't reading Hebrew Scripture. The Romans weren't thinking, hey, this will get the Jews upset if we fulfill prophecy by not breaking his legs. No, they just saw that he was already dead. They verified it by piercing his side. Don't break the legs. They walk away and they fulfilled immense prophecy. First of all, in Exodus chapter 12, speaking of the Passover lamb itself, a symbol of the coming Messiah. The Passover sacrifice that Jesus fulfilled. Sacrificed, by the way, at the same time the Passover lamb was being sacrificed in the temple. And the fulfillment is amazing. Exodus 12.46 Speaking of the, the sacrifice lamb, it is to be eaten in a single house and you are not to break to bring forth any flesh outside of the house nor are you to break any bone of it. Don't break the bones of the Passover lamb. Now, if you were a Jew and you read Exodus 12, you heard that from Moses, you think, well, that's a little random. Why not break the bones? Who really cares? Well, that's one of those God things. He just doesn't want the bones broken. Okay. It's a reminder to us that sometimes the Lord tells us something that we don't understand. And it only makes sense later. It wouldn't have made any sense to the Jewish people not to break the bones. It's just kind of a, okay, God doesn't want them broken, whatever. It's because the bones of Messiah would not be broken. And the Passover lamb, as a picture of Messiah, God is maintaining that perfect, prophetic picture. Numbers 9.12, it's repeated, they shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. They shall leave none of it till morning. Just as Jesus was not left on the cross till morning, they took him down, and they shall not break a bone of it according to all the statute of the Passover. So we have this this prophetic picture in the Passover lamb, not a bone broken, and then we come to Jesus on the cross, not a bone broken, but it's even more profound than that. Keep your finger here and turn back to Psalm 34. Middle of your Bibles, Psalm chapter 34, the 34th Psalm, And listen for a moment, David writing this. So we're talking a thousand years earlier here. Listen to what he says. Pick it up in about verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And he and his ears are open to their cry. Now, when you first read that, the only problem is if you're not covered with the blood of Jesus, you're not righteous. Because none is righteous. No, not one. So if the eyes of the Lord are to the righteous, you know, thankfully I have Jesus, but outside of Jesus, before the crucifixion, before the offering of Jesus, if the eyes of the Lord are to the righteous, that means the eyes of the Lord aren't to anybody on this planet. But he's talking about someone specifically here. The righteous, that is, Jesus. And then ultimately all those who in Jesus would be made Righteous, But listen, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their 
troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Not a single bone of Jesus was broken. Not a finger, not a little toe, none of his bones. All 206 bones in the body of Christ remained intact, just as prophesied in both the prophecies regarding the Passover lamb, but also the prophecy regarding him who is truly righteous. The Lord hears the cries of the righteous. Not a bone is broken. By the way, physiologically, you know where blood is produced? It's in the bones. It's in what they call the red marrow. Bones have the red marrow and the yellow marrow. Well, in the red marrow of the bones, all of the red blood cells, the white blood cells, and the platelets, they're all formed there. That's where that begins. It's it's brought together then with the plasma and becomes blood in our bodies that is produced in the bones. Now, i got to share something with you. I heard recently someone made the comment, "Not not, not a bone of his shall be broken. And, and the comment was, if you break a bone, it can no longer produce blood. But none of Jesus' bones were broken. Therefore, He can always produce a sufficient amount of blood to save anyone. And that's a beautiful devotional thought, but it's wrong. You see, when you break a bone, and Mark, you can double check me on this. When you break a bone, it doesn't stop producing blood. In fact, it starts producing blood at a rapid pace all around the break. The blood cells go highly active. They coagulate. They begin the healing process even before you've gotten to the doctor. Your bones are already at work. And see, what the doctors have to do is quickly set the bone because the bone's going to start healing itself. And if we don't set it, sometimes it'll heal kind of wonky because we're wonky people. If you break a bone, the blood production doesn't just stop. It goes into high gear. So while that's a nice devotional thought, it's not exactly accurate. The accurate point here is, however, that within the bone, the blood is made, it is formed, it is produced. And Jesus Christ is the righteous Lamb whose blood makes completely righteous. And there is no limit to the purifying power of the blood of Christ to cleanse, to save, and to make you the righteous. So that when you read Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, you can know that in Jesus, by Jesus, because of Jesus, the eyes of the Lord are toward you. And He sees you as holy, righteous. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Based on, by the way, Leviticus 19 verse 11, which says the same thing. 1 John chapter 1 verse 7, John said, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 2 verse 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but as I talked about a few minutes ago, for those of the whole world. That the cross is for everyone. That the blood of Jesus formed in the bones of Jesus, unbroken, is for everyone. 
Constant in healing, limitless, all-sufficient, all-cleansing blood of Jesus. But John now points out another prophecy. Not only were his bones not broken, but now we come to, secondly, a pierced side. A pierced side. Verse 37 back in John 19. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Bible students, you know where that comes from. I'm hearing Zechariah. comes from Zechariah. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. Let me read the verse to you. Zechariah 12.10 I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Does John's use of this verse bother anybody else? Does it make anyone else uncomfortable? Because it does me. Why? Here's here's the thing. If you've been around here very long, you know I've quoted Zechariah 12, verse 10 many times. We've studied Zechariah chapter 12 recently, within the last year, I believe. And I've always looked at this verse and understand it in context as prophesied by Zechariah to be looking ahead to the second coming of Christ. But John says it's fulfilled right here. Well, which one is it? It's both. It is both. Well, how do we know that it's both? Well, first of all, we know that they will look on Him whom they have pierced applies to the cross because John says it does. The Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who gave us Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, now tells John, write this down. This is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Partial. And this is what we need to get, that some prophecies have dual fulfillments. Partial fulfillment early on, a picture of what is going to come. But we also know that it has a complete fulfillment in the second coming. Partial fulfillment in the moment of the piercing of Jesus' side. But Zechariah also says in context that the entire house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem will weep over him as over a firstborn son. That did not happen at the cross. That didn't happen in that moment. In fact, the only people weeping over Jesus in that moment was not the entire house of David. It was not all of Jerusalem. It was the women. Perhaps John. Maybe some who just didn't like crucifixion anyway. Certainly wasn't the Jewish leadership. They weren't weeping over him. They weren't mourning for him as one mourns for a firstborn, an heir of the house. That day will come. And Jesus even said so, Matthew 24, that they will mourn all, not just Jerusalem, all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see Him coming. When they see the pierced one. Him whom they had pierced. But in this moment, while there is a partial fulfillment of the prophecy, the reality is that as they're looking on Him, right then, the Jewish leadership, the Romans for the most part... They looked on Him whom they had pierced with zero recognition. And people still do. People still look on the pierced one without recognizing who He is by faith. Without seeing Jesus for who He is. You know what? Faith really requires two things in our lives. 
Two simple things. If you want to have faith in God, two things you need. Recognition of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. You recognize Jesus, you see Him for who He is, and you receive the outpouring of the Spirit of grace. Well, that's what Zechariah said. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, the Lord said, I'm going to pour out on the entire house of David the Spirit of grace and of supplication. And when God does that, by the Holy Spirit, and by looking at Jesus, they will see Him for whom He is, for who He is, and recognize the pierced one, and be saved in that day. Because the Spirit is poured out, And because they see Him, they recognize Him, they look on Him. And that happened at the cross. Not for the Jewish people, but for the Roman centurion. Who there at Calvary looked on the pierced one, Mark 15.39 says, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. He got it, Mark tells us. Matthew tells us it was centurions, plural, that there may have been a a tiny little miniature Roman revival right then. Two or three Roman centurions that I would wager, if I was a betting man, I would wager became followers after the resurrection. Because right then they saw Jesus for who He was. You cannot honestly look on the one whom they have pierced and not be affected by His love, by His passion. See, the problem is that we come into church buildings, we come in even on a Sunday morning like this, and we fail to recognize Jesus and we go out unchanged. We go out untouched. Believer and non-believer alike. See, the non-believer might come in and sit down and go, okay, I heard the music and I was all right. You know, I, I, there, there are better bands out there. I heard the, that preacher guy railing on stuff, talking about the Supreme Court, whatever, that's not relevant to my life, and, and walk out the door. If you don't stop and recognize and see Jesus for who He is, faith will not come. got to see Jesus. Amen. And that's why we talk about Jesus so much. To the believer who walks in on a Sunday morning and sits down and walks out the door unchanged, unaltered, nothing different in your life, it's because you never stopped and recognized Jesus and did not allow the Holy Spirit to do His work. But if we receive the Spirit of grace, if we stop in our thinking just long enough to look at Jesus, you know what we see? We don't see judgment. It's not sticks and stones shall break my bones. No, what we see is the heart of God. We see the passion. We see the love. you got to look on Him. Please look on Him. Eyes on Jesus. And if you've never considered the pierced one before, or if you've looked on Jesus again and again and again, as we do, Clark was sharing, during communion, we look at Jesus. When we worship, we, it's to look at Jesus. Prayer is to look to Jesus. Bible study is to see Jesus. If we're doing all these things for the purpose of seeing Him, looking on Him whom they have pierced, it will sustain your faith. It will grow your faith. It will ground your faith in all that truly matters. But leave Jesus out, and all you're getting in a, is a lecture this morning, and who needs that? Not me. Now go back to verse 34 and jot this down, because when you look at Jesus, you get this. Number three, you get a proven love. A proven love. Verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. 
blood and water flowing together from his side. Depending on which side was pierced, we're not certain. But blood and water, a certain medical sign of a burst heart, of a ruptured heart. That would be a reason for the flow of both of these fluids. Not a single bone of Jesus was broken, but his heart was. His heart was. And I believe physically it burst wide open. And I believe emotionally as he looked down from the cross and cried, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And I believe spiritually Jesus' heart broke wide open. The heart of God broke for you and for me. Listen again to David's prophecy in Psalm 34 verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Why? Well, because Psalm 34.20 says He keeps all His bones, not one of them is broken. He is near the brokenhearted. Listen, because He gets the brokenhearted. He understands the brokenhearted. He draws near to you and to me in our worst moments because He's experienced the worst moment. He knows what it's like. Psalm 137 verse 3 says He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds because His heart burst, because His heart was broken. And if that's you this morning, if you are among the brokenhearted for any reason in your life, if you are among the brokenhearted, listen. There in that moment at Calvary, because of what happened, God knows both the broken heart of a father and... The burst heart of a Savior. He knows them both. He's had his heart broken in both ways. And listen, please get this. The saddest thing to me about our Supreme Court's decision about the revision of the definition of marriage is that, listen, it denies the brokenhearted the ability to see the love of God for them. What do you mean? It just takes the issue off the table. It just kind of accepts sin for sin. You sin, I sin, we all sin, no big deal. We'll just kind of all sin and do our own sinful thing. And we never come to understand the love of Jesus. We never see the love of the Father. We've taken it off the table. We've twisted and bent and perverted in so many ways the very joy of the garden. Joy of the garden? What are you talking about, Rick? Walking in the cool of the day in fellowship with the Lord. See, that's what happened before the whole mess began. Before Adam and Eve chose to sin. Well, Eve was deceived. Adam chose to sin right out. Before that. See, God remembers. Before that. Fellowship. Walking together. A love relationship that was simple and pure and beautiful. And ever since that sin... The Lord has been preparing for and providing ultimately the way to get back to the garden. To go once again back to the place where nobody's broken hearted. Where we walk hand in hand with the Lord. And note this, He gave us all the freedom to choose. And when He did this, putting the tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, put that in the garden, giving Adam and Eve the right, the moment, that they could choose to rebel against Him. 
When God did this, He chose for Himself, listen, He chose for Himself to become not the God who breaks bones, but the God of the brokenhearted. And as a matter of fact, He chose for Himself to become the brokenhearted God. I don't know that we will ever understand fully or recognize the depth, thank you, the depth of the broken heart of God. I can't imagine. I can imagine as a father having my heart broken over one or more decisions maybe that my children might make. That would break my heart if, if something was chosen that was, was opposed to how they had been raised. You know, I, I get that. One or two or three or even if all six of my kids completely rebelled and went off the deep end. That would break my heart. I cannot imagine for a moment what it would be like to be father of all humanity. And have my heart broken by everyone. And when God gave us the freedom to choose or reject Him, He chose Himself to be the broken-hearted God and to be the God of the broken-hearted. You see, He knew this would happen. By the planting of the tree, He knew it would happen. He had to know. Because the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17.9 The heart of every man and woman who has walked the planet is sick, is twisted, takes the beauty of the relationship in the garden and immediately begins to twist it like thorns. That's the problem with the Supreme Court decision, my friends. Is it takes a beautiful created gift of the Lord and begins to allow it to be reinterpreted by man. Twisted by man. And and if that's offensive, if someone living a homosexual lifestyle would, would say, well, so you're calling me twisted? I would have to say, yes, as twisted as I am. You see, I've done the same thing. I've I've twisted. I've perverted things. I've taken beautiful things from the Lord and twisted them into my own wrong understanding. That's why I open up the Word of God every day. To reorient my thinking. That's why I cry out to the Lord in prayer. Why I seek the Spirit of the Lord in my life for a continual washing by the water and the Word. Because otherwise I'm going to twist it up. We all do. He is the God of the brokenhearted. And before the first man or woman drew their first breath, He set in plan, He set in motion the plan to burst His own heart. But you know, there's more to this heart bursting. There has to be. We're only 47 minutes into the sermon and I never preach that short. (laughs) Why does John feel the need specifically to testify? I saw the blood in the water. And he goes on to say, and I testify of this to you that you may believe. I want you to understand this. I saw the blood in the water. Well, clearly John himself, as the apostle writing this, was close enough to the cross to see Both elements gush out of Jesus the moment the spear went into his side. So he was close enough to recognize both blood and water. He was not standing off at a distance. And he sees these elements flooding out of the side of Jesus. And in another letter, 1 John chapter 5, you might want to turn over there quickly, 1 John chapter 5, John now applies this very testimony explains why it was so important in John chapter 19 that he testify of these things. John chapter 5, verse 5. Watch this. And this is very misunderstood in the church. 
All kinds of weird theology about this. Just listen to it simply. Verse 5, 1 John chapter 5. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now I love that right there. There's a whole sermon right there. You overcome the world not because you have worked yourself into overcoming. Not because you've done 12 steps. Not because you've done 17 things. Not because you have become strong enough, but because you have believed that Jesus is the Son of God. That's how you overcome. Well, verse 6, this is the one who came by water and blood. Oh, oh yeah. John was there. He saw that. The water, the blood. He came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. And not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify. The Spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, hey, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. Okay, what does that mean? He who came by water and the blood and the Spirit. And the water, the blood and the Spirit, these three work together. That's got to be some, you know, strange spiritual... No, it's very, very simple. We try to over-spiritualize things and make it complicated. This is as simple as it gets. Now, some read this and say, okay, water and blood is a metaphor that implies baptism. Because you go into the pool and you're... You're laid back into the waters and you're washed with the blood and you come out a new creature. So water and blood, baptism, right? Well, that's a nice thought. And that is what happens when you're baptized. But that's not what John's talking about. How do you know? Because he doesn't say so. The water and the blood and the Spirit. And by the way, this is baptism. He doesn't say that. Well, okay, others say that the water is the Word. And the blood is the is the crucifixion. It's the death of Christ. So it's it's it's... Knowing the Word and and believing the crucifixion, He's the one who came by the Word and and came to die and did those... It's still a little off. Others will say the water represents refreshment. He came by water that is refreshing. And He came by blood, which is redemption. Refreshment and redemption. And again, you can make a great devotional thought out of that. And I actually have no problem saying that. The the water and the blood can represent refreshment and redemption. But that's not what John is dealing with here. The reason why it was so significant, why John pauses in the narrative in John 19 and says, and by the way, I'm testifying of this, that I saw the blood and the water flowing out of Jesus. And now here in 1 John turns around and says, it's by the water and the blood that He came... He is telling us very simply that the blood, the water, and the Spirit testify of the physical reality of Jesus. It is that simple. He came by water. All of us do. If you've been present at a birth, you know there's water. Usually the birth process starts by the water breaking. I'm not even going to talk about that. Because I'm a man and it just grosses me out. And then the process continues. There is water in and blood. Water and blood. The fluids of birth. We all came by water and blood. Fluids of birth. Also, they were the fluids of death for Jesus. What is John signifying here? Very simply. That Jesus came in flesh and bone and blood. 
that he came a physical man, Emmanuel, God with us, by the testimony of the water, the blood, and the spirit. He came in reality. He came in the body. John was dealing with an issue. We still deal with it today, but maybe not as pronounced as at the time of John, called docetism, which was an offshoot of Gnosticism. Docetism, which was the belief that basically Jesus was in the appearance of man. He he looked like a human being. He acted like a human being, but he really wasn't. He wasn't fully man. He he was fully God, but he was more a spirit. And so all these things that happened, well, it was more of a spiritualizing thing. They loved allegory and metaphor and spiritualizing, and far too many in the church today still do. Instead of just the simple, basic truth, John is saying, I saw him die. Take my word for it. I saw water and blood gush out of him. Water and blood does not gush out of a spirit. Water and blood does not gush out of some metaphysical thing that's not reality. I saw this. Jesus Christ came as a man, born of the fluids of water and blood, died with the fluids of water and blood. He is actual. He is real. He is like us. And that is so important. As John began the whole gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Okay, there's the metaphysical. And John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, the gospel is concerning His Son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. God became flesh. Who declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. God and flesh. Now, I know some of you believers are like, I know this, Rick. I get this, Rick. Don't, don't just set this aside. Because it's right at the heart of the gospel. What does it matter if he was flesh or blood or metaphysical? What does it matter as long as God's work was done, right? What, what does it matter? Listen, to John, and it needs to be this way for you and for me. To John, the blood and the water signified absolute fellowship of God with man. He knows what it's like to stub his toe. He knows what it's like to run into a door frame trying to quickly get out of the house. He knows what it's like to have things go wrong during the day. He knows what it's like to have friends betray him. Knows what it's like to feel physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain. God came into absolute fellowship with humanity. He is the God who gets us because He became one of us. And that's the whole issue of the blood and the water. God of the brokenhearted, whose own heart broke as He wore flesh and blood and bone just like you and me. So don't tell me that Jesus doesn't understand where you're at. Don't tell me that Jesus' heart does not continue to break for the lost and the confused and the perverted in this world. Don't tell me that Jesus doesn't care. He cares more than anybody possibly could being both God and man. 
And He's not the God of broken bones. You know what that means? It means He has no problem standing for you. He has no problem standing up. The Supreme Court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, was ready to throw the book at Stephen in the form of stones. Remember what this says, Acts chapter 7, verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was given the most amazing vision at the very moment that rocks are flying. They're ready to pummel him to death. They're stoning him. He sees Jesus standing up. What's he doing? I can only guess. Go, Stephen, go. Go, Stephen, go. Hang in there, bro. You're almost home. Jesus is cheering him on. Jesus was standing for Stephen. Now, other places in Scripture tell us that he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. His work completed, he sat down. So there's only one thing that makes Jesus stand up, and that's to cheer you on. That's to say, come on, gang. You're close. We're almost there. Standing for Stephen, cheering him on. He is not the God of broken bones. He has no problem standing. He's not the God of broken bones. He has the strength to carry you when you don't have the strength. His bones solid and secure. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. Isaiah 40 verse 11 says, In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He's not the God of broken bones. He is the God who alone has the power to stand for you, to carry you when you can't stand, and to make you stand. As Jude writes in Jude 24, He's able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's stand. Father, we stand up this morning before You. And we declare Your glory and Jesus, Your humanity. We come believing and knowing that You came in flesh and blood that You fully inhabited the human body, just as I do today. And that You know us. And You get us because You became one of us. And Father, as we stand this morning, I know that there are some here. I don't know who. I'm not a prophet, Lord. I don't have some special insight, but I know there's someone here this morning who's having trouble standing at all. Whose life is shaky. Whose heart is broken. Whose fear is getting the best of them. Whose struggle to breathe. You are the God of the brokenhearted. And so all I can do, Lord Jesus, is plead Your blood and Your mercy. And ask that each and every person here this morning will be given eyes to see, to recognize the pierced one. To believe in Jesus as Lord. Over and above all the issues of our lives. 
God who gets us, who understands, who poured out every last drop of His blood to save this people. So Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, move now. Draw us to Your side. And help us to see You. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So we sing this song, prayer team, come on up. I invite you to come. Not just the prayer team, I invite you to come. If you've never recognized Jesus as Lord, I invite you to come this morning and start a new life with Him today. And you may say, well, I'm too twisted. Look, it doesn't matter. He'll fix that. Don't wait until you got it together. You'll never come. But I also invite you, believers, if you're brokenhearted, if you're hurting, if you're confused, if you're distressed, don't stay standing. Walk forward. Pray with a brother or sister. Bring your heart to the Lord. He has brought His heart to you this morning. Bring your heart to Him today. Won't you come while we sing?